feel like I'm getting ready to watch an Avengers movie or something after that sermon bump. That, uh, that was intense. Which, next one up for me is Endgame. Quentin, I'm doing my best, man. I'm almost there. I'm almost, almost there. Hey, he is still risen. He is still risen indeed. That's right. You know, we had such a great Easter celebration last week. Uh, It was good to see everybody celebrate the resurrection together. Uh, I really appreciate our oldest daughter, Adeline, giving me a hand at the beginning of my sermon with the the Jenga game. Uh, Nora, our our youngest, was going to join her, but she woke up sick that morning. She wasn't feeling well. And and so I asked Adeline, I was like, do you still want to do it? And she kind of thought, and she's like... I can do it. Um, I can do it. And so she put on her brave pants and uh, she came up here and and she played Jenga. I told a couple of people, um, I think that of everyone that had pressure on Easter morning, that little girl had the most pressure riding on her shoulders to keep that Jenga game from falling before it was too soon. And uh, if you attend the the 11 o'clock service normally, and you were there last Sunday, uh, you may have noticed that there was one point where she moved a piece and the entire thing almost came toppling down. And she put her arm up there to catch it. And she kind of held it right there. And she told me afterwards that she was thinking um, probably something that you all all think most Sundays, hurry up and get to the point. <laughs> and uh, so she did a great job, and I'm uh, so, so proud of her. And as I was packing up the Jenga game last Tuesday morning, I was thinking about how easy it is for us to do the same thing with the Easter message. Like on Easter morning, we have a huge emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus, and we should, like because that's what the morning is all about, is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he lives again, and that his life now gives us the hope for new life today and eternal life someday in the future. That's what Easter morning is all about But oftentimes, I think that we can treat the resurrection kind of like Easter decorations. We pull them out, we celebrate it, and then we put it back in a box and we tuck it away until next Easter when we pull it out and celebrate it again. But if you remember, the point of the Jenga game is that without the resurrection, none of this matters. Like you pull out that, that doctrine, that belief, that hope that we have, you pull that out and everything else about our faith comes crashing down. And so the resurrection matters, not just on Easter morning, but every single day of our lives. The conclusion from last week is that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And for the next few weeks, we are going to explore some of the ways that the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not just continues to shape our lives, but also our church. So we're in week two of, of this, this series in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter that was written to a church. Last week, we looked at chapter 15. And, and, and so that's where, where Paul spends a lot of the time talking about the resurrection, why it matters, defending it. And so we started last Sunday, this series through 1 Corinthians at the end of the letter. And today we're gonna go back to the beginning. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 1. 
We'll also have the words up on the screen if you want to follow along, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And 1 Corinthians, again, is a letter that Paul writes to this church in Corinth, Greece, um, somewhere between 54, 55 AD. It's not actually the first letter that he writes to this church. Uh, we, we see in this letter that, that he refers back to a letter that he'd sent them before. We don't have that one. It's kind of just lost in antiquity, but we do have this one. And so that's why we know it as 1 Corinthians. And even though this letter was written to a church in a very different culture at a very different time, I think that there are some interesting similarities between first century Corinth and 21st century Bloomington, Indiana. First and foremost, Corinth was just a cool place to live, kind of like Bloomington. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, I think some of us would agree with that, right? Some of you townies are like, oh, I've lived here all my life. It's not that great. Listen, it is awesome. We don't know how good we have it here in Bloomington. It is an amazing place to, to live. But, uh, Corinth was this, was this place of this hub of commerce and community. Corinth was, was a place where, where education was, was central and foundational to them. New ideas would, would start in Corinth and then go go out into the rest of the world. Corinth was a place of culture and, and knowledge. It was filled with all kind of political viewpoints that oftentimes were in opposition of one another. It's a good thing we don't have anything like that in Bloomington, but, but in Corinth, <laughs> that's what they had to go through. It was a place filled with all different kinds of faiths, religions, ideologies, practices. It was kind of a melting pot of all of these things coming together in this one place. And Paul writes this letter to this church because it is filled with new Christians. In fact, by definition, pretty much everyone in that church was a new Christian. Jesus lived and died and the resurrection happened 20 years before this. I've been following Jesus longer than what the people were who Paul writes this letter to. Some of you have been following Jesus for much longer and what was happening is these new followers of Jesus were trying to figure out how do we live for him while also coming from this culture that was very different than this new faith that, that we have found. You see, the Corinthians grew up steeped in this polytheistic culture, this, this idea where anything goes. They, they were shaped by their culture's values and ideas, and practices. And, and so these new followers of Jesus were trying to figure out how do we live as Christians from this culture that was very much different than the ideas of Christ. And what was happening is that they were taking Jesus and they were taking their culture that they were very familiar with and instead of leaving their old selves behind in pursuit of the new life of Christ, they were taking the old selves and their old ways of thinking and doing and kind of blending it together with this new faith in Jesus. And this led to all kinds 
of problems, problems that we're going to explore actually in this series. The church in Corinth was filled with division. It was filled with sexual immorality, family members sleeping with other family members that they should not have been sleeping with. It was filled with doctrinal confusion, pagan worship practices. All of these things were coming together and muddying the waters of what it meant to follow Jesus. And I think it's incredibly interesting and insightful that of all of the places where Paul could have started, all of the things that he had to address with this church, the very first thing that Paul does is he appeals to them for unity. I think he knows that if this church cannot be united together in Christ, then there is no way they were going to be able to work anything else out. He knew that if they could not unite together in Christ, that this church that he helped plant, that he helped get started, would eventually die. That the light of this church shining brightly in the darkness of Corinth would be snuffed out if they could not come to a place of unity. And so in these verses that we are looking at today, Paul gives the Corinthians and us a call to unity. He points out some of the causes of disunity that were unique to them, but I think we're going to find today are incredibly relevant for us today. And then he ends the section that we're looking at by pointing to the power that we have in Christ for unity. So let's look at the call to unity, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's making this appeal, not in his own name, not in his own power, not in his own authority. He is invoking the name of Jesus in this appeal that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul appeals to them as brothers and sisters. He, he appeals to them as the family of God because that is their identity. That is who they are. And healthy families don't necessarily agree about everything. <laughs> but healthy families know how to be united around the main thing, a love for one another. And when there's anything that threatens that, that main thing that they unite around, then they work it out. They, they, they go through it together. They don't give up on one another. Healthy families work through conflict and they don't ignore it. And so Paul reminds them that they are the family of God and then calls them to remain united. You see, unity is not something that we create. Unity is something that we cultivate. It's something that we have been given in Christ and we are to care for it. We are to maintain it. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It is the Holy Spirit that binds us together. He is the one who unifies us. Our job is to 
care for that unity, protect it, nurture it, preserve it so that we can keep it. When you read through the New Testament, you find that unity is a big deal to the authors. It reflects, I think, the very nature of God and it reveals the power of the gospel at work in us. And we'll talk more about that. So what does this kind of unity look like? Well, Paul gives us three things. It means that that we agree with one another in what we say, that we live with no divisions between us, and that we are the same in mind and thought. And that does not mean that we cannot disagree on anything. In fact, I think as Christians, we have the liberty to disagree about any number of things. And we will disagree about any number of things. Unity means that we agree on the most important things. That we agree about the core of the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Unity means believing and saying the same thing about that. And in those places where we disagree and we will disagree, we do not let divisions form amongst us. That word for divisions in verse 10, it it describes a tear in a garment. And I think it's actually a really good um, picture and and illustration of like what can happen in our relationships. And, And so a fray happens in a garment. And and eventually, if it's not cared for and mended up, that fray becomes a little rip. And if that's not taken care of and and mended up, then that rip becomes an all-out tear, and there is division in the garment. And Paul is painting this word picture to encourage us to mend the tears in our relationship, not not until uh, the, the place where division has already happened, but right at the beginning when it begins to fray. When there's a a break in the relationship that causes maybe mistrust, that you do something about it now. And we we do that by talking to each other in those places where we might disagree. Not talking at each other. We see plenty of that happening in the world around us. And clearly the end result is not unity, is it? We talk to each other. And we allow the gospel to inform us not our feelings. It also means that unity is not blanket affirmation of what anyone thinks or feels or how they choose to live. That's not Christian unity either. Jesus does not call us to be peacekeepers that peacekeeping oftentimes involves maybe ignoring things, sweeping things underneath the rug, trying not to rock the boat. And that usually does not lead to health. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, which means sometimes we have to enter into conflict for the good and the sake of working things out to get to a place of unity. And, and so Christian unity is, is, is not this blanket affirmation of just what anyone thinks or feels or how they want to live. Christian unity is a collective affirmation of what God thinks, what God feels, how God instructs us to live. And then in humility, we submit and we surrender to him, not our feelings, 
And along that journey, wherever God's word confronts us or convicts us, we lovingly come alongside one another and we work to be more like Jesus. We don't affirm everything just to get along. We lovingly sometimes confront, confess, and even repent. And so unity is not uniformity. It does not mean that we will agree about everything, but that we will agree about the most important things of the gospel. That we will strive to be more like Jesus together. And that is the kind of unity that Paul is calling us to in 1 Corinthians. And he knows, he knows that there are going to be so many things that push against us experiencing that unity. So many things that want to divide us and lead us to a point of disunity. And in verses 11 and 12, I think he highlights one of the biggest causes of disunity. And it's going to sound weird to us, but I think that, I think that it's incredibly relevant. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Let's push pause right there and leave this up on, on the screen. We, we don't really know anything about Chloe's household. We don't know how Paul got this information. Uh, it could be that, that Chloe's family uh, are a part of the church in Corinth, in Corinth. Maybe they helped Paul get it started. And, and they're, they're in the church and they're starting just to see some things that are very concerning to them. Like they're kind of veering off course a little bit. And so, and so Chloe sends some from, of her family to go and find Paul and kind of tell him what's going on. It, it could be that, that Chloe uh, lives in another region and some of her family went to Corinth for business and they came, like they attended the church while they were there and they came back and they reported some, some concerns that they were seeing. Whatever happened, I think we've probably all been in the place that Chloe's family was in, where we have this information and where we've seen something and we just don't know what to do with it. Like we don't know if we should just ignore it and like just have, it's going to be okay, but we, but we see a brother or sister in Christ starting to veer off in a dangerous direction. And again, I'm talking about someone who is in Christ, in the church. Paul elsewhere says, what is it for us what the world does? No, we're, we're talking about within the body of Christ. When we see a brother or sister start to, to stray, do we, do we just ignore it and hope that eventually they'll find their way back? Do we confront them about it and the awkwardness that that could maybe cause? Do we go and tell someone else, not in a gossipy way, but tell someone else who might be able to, to help steer them back in the right direction? It's a tension that I've managed. <laughs> I imagine it's probably a tension you've managed as well. I don't know that there's any one right answer but I think that Chloe's household is a, is a model for us here. It's not that they went and they were tattletales on the church in Corinth to Paul. I think it's that they saw some things that were concerning to them and they knew that Paul, Paul would be able to help steer them back in the right direction. And he says, what I mean is this. And so this is what they were seeing. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, well, I follow Christ. 
We like to think that divisions in the church happen because of high, lofty, theological, doctrinal reasons. And that's the case sometimes. If I'm honest, in my experience, most division within the church comes down to preferences or styles way more than doctrine and beliefs. It, it comes down to we, we hold tightly to an opinion and we make that a test of fellowship with someone else. That if you don't agree with this, then I, don't, I question if you're even a follower of Jesus. <laughs> And people may try to cloak it in doctrine because it sounds better than I'm not getting my way. But it's usually over a preference or a desire or a tradition that has been moved away from that oftentimes causes the most division and strife within the church. And in a way, I think that is what is going on here People in Corinth are aligning themselves with different teachers and leaders, not based on theology or doctrine, but based on preference and style and charisma. They are aligning and dividing and arguing over preferences. And so you have people who are saying, I am a Paul guy. These are probably the ones that have been around for a while. They remember the, the beginning days of Corinth when it was exciting and it was fresh and it was new. Uh, maybe Paul preached a sermon that convicted them and, and led them to start following Jesus. And so Paul means so much to them. Others are saying that they're an Apollos person. One thing that we know about Apollos from the book of Acts is that he could preach. He was a dynamic speaker. He was eloquent. He was full of charisma. Apollos was Greek, and so he probably appealed to his fellow Greeks in Corinth that valued rhetoric and wisdom. And they would probably look at Paul and say, yeah, did you hear about that time that he preached so long and it was so boring that some dude fell asleep and fell out the window and died? Like, yeah, you can have Paul. Give me Apollos. <laughs> Other people are saying, I am a Peter guy. Maybe there were some Jewish Christians in, in Corinth, and when they heard Peter preach, they just felt more connected to him. Their background and, and culture resonated with, with Peter. And others are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You follow your preachers and your man-made traditions. I don't need anyone or anything else. It is just me and Jesus. And that sounds good. But oftentimes that can be as divisive as a statement because it's a way to separate from the church. And you cannot separate Jesus from his church, his body of Christ. And so it seems like maybe they were weaponizing the name of Jesus and using it against their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Whatever it was, each person had their preference and it's causing division in the church. And hear me, there is nothing wrong with having a preference. I have preferences, you have preferences. It's just that when our preferences become our priority, we will stir up division every time. When our preferences become our priority and we place them above anything or anyone else, we will stir up division every time. We will begin to look down on those who may not share our preferences with us. We may become critical of them. 
Maybe even giving off a spiritual arrogance that we know better. We know how to actually connect with Jesus, how to actually worship him, how to actually serve him. I've served in the church for long enough to know that we, and and by we, I mean I as well, can get almost evangelistic about our preferences or our ministry styles or programs as if that is the only thing that somebody needs or it's the only right way to do it or that it is the most important cause for the church to focus on. But the most important thing that people need, the most important thing that I need is Jesus And when we elevate anything or anyone above him, not only does it weaken our own faith, but it has very real potential to divide the church. Paul knows this, and so he points back to Jesus as the one that gives us power for the unity that we've been called to. Look at verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you are baptized in my name. And then, I, I love this. Uh, Paul didn't have Microsoft Word, uh, right, as he's writing this. And so he couldn't just like, ooh, ooh, I thought of a couple of more. Let me just cursor back over here and include them. And so instead he just like has this little aside. Uh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. How would you like... How would you like to be that person that's like, I'm a Paul guy. He's the only preacher for me. That dude baptized me. And like, you don't find your name in there. Like Paul just forgot about that. (laughs) I think it gives a little bit more of the absurdity to this argument. And he closes with this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And Paul's not saying that he doesn't value baptism. He does. Elsewhere, he promotes it. We see him practice it. Baptism is important to Paul, but it's, it's, it's an outcome of preaching the gospel. It, it is the outcome of someone coming to find new life in Jesus. And so he's reminding them that their life and that their faith and that their unity is all about Jesus, nothing and no one else. And he does this by using some hyperbole. Look again at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? These questions are absolutely ridiculous. And I think that that is the point. Paul is saying that they are living in a way that is so contrary to the gospel that if he had to put their theology in words, this is what it would look like. Their theology practically is, yeah, Christ is divided. Yes, I am saved by Paul. Paul did die for me. I was baptized into Paul. It's absurd, and Paul is saying that all of these little factions are equally as absurd. And I'm telling you, you can replace the name of Paul with any preference that we hold. Did that worship style die for you? Were you baptized into the name of that instrument? Did that ministry or that program give itself for you? If not, then why are you holding it up above the name of Christ and the unity 
he has called us to protect and to preserve. See, Christ is unified and so is his body. Christ was, was, was crucified for you and so there is nothing and no one else that is worthy of your allegiance. No one. We are baptized into Christ. We identify with him above anything and anyone else. And in all of these questions, Paul is reminding us of the source of the power of our unity in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection, and the new life that is found in him. Not with wisdom or eloquence, Apollos. (laughs) Not with wisdom and eloquence. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is shifting our attention away from personalities, away from preferences, and putting it back on Jesus where the true power of the gospel and our unity lies. Christ is our righteousness. He is our true identity. And so we can let go of trying to be right all the time. To which I think I heard my wife give an amen at the 9.30 service <laughs> last week, or last service. Christ is our righteousness and our true identity. And so we can, we can stop trying to, to, to demand from others our own way or, or get defensive when others disagree with us. Christ is our security. And so we can let go of our fears and, and our constant need to control everything and everyone because we can trust in him. Jesus and his resurrection is our victory so we can lay down all of our selfish ambition, our vain conceit, and our need to win every argument. And so is there anything in your life that you are holding on to and placing it above Jesus? Any preference that that you have made a priority in your faith that, that you need to crucify on the cross And maybe there's a hard conversation that you need to have with someone in order to cultivate and care for the unity that we have in Christ. Don't talk about that person with others. Talk to them. Maybe find someone that can go with you when you have that conversation. The power of the gospel is in the cross of Christ and his resurrection, and it changes everything. And when the main passion, pursuit, and the desire of the church is more of Jesus and less of us, then we find the unity that Christ has invited us into. Let's remember and celebrate the power of the gospel at work now. God, thank you that you are united. We see it in the Trinity. You are one. Lord, help us to be united as you are. Father, where where we have maybe put up a preference as a test of fellowship or uh, as a way that is making us maybe look down or be critical of another brother or sister in Christ, Lord, convict us of that lovingly. Help us to to lay that down. And, and, and that's not to mean that we should be soft on, on the core tenets and, and doctrine of our faith. Absolutely not. We unite around that. But it's all of those other things, Lord, that, that want to seep in and, and divide us. God, may we just hand those over to you. And, and as a church, may, may your unity shine brightly in our community 
May the name of Jesus be made known through us. And Lord, if there is someone here today that that is ready or that needs to unify with you through faith in Jesus, identify with him in death, burial, and resurrection of baptism, Lord, would you give them the courage to do that? Show them your love. Draw them to you now. I pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.